Matthew chapter 9, starting a new series today. Verse 9. Matthew 9, verse 9. And let me ask you to do this. If you're not following, uh, if you're not following me yet on Twitter, uh, look up uh, PJ West, Pastor J West, just the letter PJ West. You can follow me there. Or uh, if we're not Facebook friends yet, man, I'd love, love for you to invite me to be your friend. Uh, because from now till Easter, I'm going to be giving updates uh, on those mediums uh, for you about Easter. So uh, a lot of thoughts about Easter and then some information too. Inspirational thoughts about Easter and then some information about our Easter celebration here. So follow me. This is the new series. One of the biggest challenges that we have uh, in our spirituality, especially in the South, is cultural Christianity. In other words, the idea that what it means to be a Christian can be defined by what is popular or, or, what is, um, or by a fad or what is socially acceptable or even what is normative in our culture rather than being defined by what's in the Bible. So, so being a Christian then can be defined by, uh, well, I, I listen to a Christian radio station or... You know, I shop at the Christian bookstore, or um, I, I go to Christian conferences, or my friends are Christian, or I listen to Christian music, or I'm a good person, or I'm being on, I'm an honest person. I don't cheat people. I don't hurt people. Or posting Christian things on Facebook, or going to Christian places, or going to church. So, in other words, those environmental factors define my Christianity rather than my Christianity being defined by the internal factors that we gain instruction on through Scripture. So that's one of the big challenges that we face. But recently I had the opportunity to talk to um, a couple of the leaders uh, in juvenile social services in Shelby County, and they shared with uh, a group of us uh, that one of the big challenges that we're facing in Shelby County and Alabaster is, you know, the influx of drugs and uh, children are, the first time a child is uh, introduced to drugs, exposed to some form of drugs, in our area is nine years old. And the first um, experiment with drugs usually happens somewhere around 12. And so these folks who work with children and young young people and teenagers and preteens and teens told us that one of the big challenges that they see is when, when kids get in trouble these services are called in on the behalf of the family or whatever to, to help or do whatever they need to do but they said the really complicated thing is too many times they're called into families that on the surface have everything together these are pillars of the community. These are leaders. These are people that are moral. These are people that, you know, go to church. These are people that are leaders in their church. But when you get inside their home, you see something very different than you see in public. And so one of the so what I'm saying is that looks to me like cultural Christianity. Like I play the part, I say the part, I know how to act the part, but there's something fundamentally internal internal that it, that is not uh, happening. And so one of the examples they brought up is, you know, in America we had this huge box office hit 
the Passion of the Christ. Remember when that hit and it sold billions and whatever, whatever it was. But what's interesting is though the same people that made the Passion of the Christ a box office hit have made Fifty Shades of Grey a box office hit. And so some of the same people go to both. And, and, there's a, and there's an issue here. And I'm just wondering, maybe part of the problem is the way we try to talk people into being a Christian or the way we let them know they are one. So we say things like this. And by the way, I've, in, uh, full disclosure, I've said all these. We say things like, ask Jesus into your heart or pray the sinner's prayer or invite Christ into your life. But these are all cultural definitions of Christianity. There are no such prayers found in the New Testament anywhere. The Bible never uses any of those phrases, any of those phrases. So let's say, for example, you have a dear loved one. You know, there's some believers in your family. You gather around. You're praying for that loved one. The, the loved one, something happens. They have a breakdown. Uh, you know, they, they, they finally give in and they pray the prayer and they, they accept Christ into their life, and everybody sighs a big exhale of relief. Everybody, every Christian has had this experience with a friend or family member somewhere. Everything's going to be okay now because they prayed the prayer. I'm not saying that's not a great start. I'm just saying that's not the whole story. And in time, the loved one recomposes themselves. They move on with their life, and no real change has ever happened. What, what, what happened there? Can we really say that that person has biblically responded to the gospel? The problem with invite Jesus into your heart is the gospel is centered in Jesus. It's not centered in me, and it's not centered in you, and it's not centered in anybody else. So it's not our invitation. We're not, and I'm not just making a semantical difference. There's actually a profound theological difference to what I'm saying. We're not just inviting Jesus into our life. Jesus is inviting us into his life. Psalm says in him we live and we move and we have our being. So he's inviting us into the life of God. It's not our invitation. It's his invitation. And I'm just saying, if you get that wrong to a certain degree, it might actually make a difference. It is an overwhelming and a magnificent and a glorious thought that the God of the universe has sacrificially killed his son so that we could be given this powerful invitation in such a convincing fashion. It's a powerful and magnificent thought. We're not inviting him into our life. He's inviting us into his life. To get that backwards just might strip the gospel of its transformational power. So what is his invitation? It's to give our life to him. It's to put our feet in his footprints. Now, this sets up this series that we're on for this month. We're just calling it Follow Me. It's to follow him. Jesus' invitation is to follow him. It's to follow him. 21 times in the New Testament, Jesus said, follow me. It was the single most often command Jesus gave. Now, as we turn our attention toward Easter and we begin to think about what uh, the sacrifice that Jesus gave means to us, we'll begin unpacking this, uh, these times that Jesus looked at somebody and said, follow me. Today we're going to talk about Matthew. So Matthew chapter 9, you can look there with me, verse 9. One of the, Jesus' disciples, Matthew, and we're going to kind of retrace his story back to the point where Jesus invited Matthew into his life. 
So here's what I'm going to do. I want to tell you the story because I want you to see Matthew in maybe a way that you haven't before. I want you to have more background on who Matthew was so that you can understand how powerful it was when the moment that Jesus walks up to Matthew and says, follow me, you can see what a gap that really was in his, in his life. You see what a change that happened. And, and then as, after I tell you the story, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you three kind of quick takeaways on what do we learn from Jesus' invitation of Matthew to follow me. How does, how does that, what does that have to do with us? So Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, when you and I hear names, we associate images with those names. So, for example, if I told you someone had a dog named Butch, right, like a certain picture pops into your mind, doesn't it? Butch, okay, that's going to have to be a Rottweiler or, uh, you know, a pit bull, or at least a good old-fashioned slobbery bulldog. But if I told you Butch, you know, was a white teacup poodle with painted toenails and a bow in its tail, you would say, something's wrong here. That, that's, that's, I, I, that's not what I expected. It, that's disappointing. So when I say the name Matthew, you have a certain picture in your mind but like Butch the Poodle, you might be disappointed. And we're led to believe in Scripture that Matthew's parents battled with disappointment. In other words, he didn't turn out the way they thought he was going to turn out. Why would I say that? Well, Matthew's decision to follow Jesus is recorded in three different books. And in other places, Matthew wasn't called Matthew. He was called Levi. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Uh, people later knew him as Matthew, and some people think that might have been a nickname. But Matthew's mom and dad called him Levi. Levi was a priestly tribe. If you remember the 12 tribes of Israel, the priestly tribe, one of the 12 tribes were the spiritual leaders. Uh, and that was the tribe of Levi. They were the Levites. And so for, for Matthew's mom and dad to name him Levi, they, they had a clear intention. This boy is to be a spiritual leader. And we discern that, and what we're going to do is we're going to name him Levi because God wants him to be a spiritual leader, and we know that. Now, the Levites were set aside. They didn't do the other jobs that other people did. Their job was to conduct worship and to bring spiritual service and leadership to Israel. So Matthew's father was in the priestly line, and his grandfather was in the priestly line, and his great-grandfather, and so on and so on and so on. So from childhood, Levi would have been trained for the day that he would enter into the same uh, spiritual leadership. And as a young boy, Matthew was destined, as it were, to give that service to God. But it didn't work out that way. At some point, Matthew's heart must have turned away from his family, turned his back on God or his religion, turned his back on his family and his heritage. Uh, this is kind of like the person we would think of today who's been called to ministry. But instead, they have an opportunity to be successful in American business so uh, they sort of trade in their calling for a six-figure job in corporate America. Now, now, how do we know all this? Well, Matthew's a tax collector, uh, and that, that carries a whole other story with it. This would have been an embarrassment to his family because tax collectors were seen as sellouts, and a fellow Jews treated them like a traitor. And if someone didn't pay their... Uh, you know, someone didn't pay the taxes they were supposed to pay. Matthew, all he had to do is go run and tattletale to the Roman government. Then the Roman government would persecute the Jewish people. Two totally different races, two different people. The Jews were submitted or 
in, in bondage in some ways to the Roman government at the time. So you wouldn't be popular if you did that. Nobody, no Jew, liked tax collectors. Nobody. So Matthew was likely very educated. The Levites were the most educated of all the, all the Jews. Uh, so the Romans loved to hire them because they were educated and they knew a lot about accounting and math and all kind of that. They had a wide scope of education. So now, uh, can you see where the rub is? Now Matthew's educated and rich. And he's gotten rich all by selling out his own people. So they usually ended up very wealthy tax collectors at their own people's expense. Now tax collectors were also known as cheats. They didn't care about God. They didn't care about honesty. They had kind of sold their soul out before. They were only interested in serving their self. And uh, they had a lot of inventive ways to get money. So basically what Rome would say is, you collect this amount of taxes, everything you collect above that you keep. So they were incentivized to collect more than they than Rome needed, and then they would grow wealthy by collecting extra. So here's some of the uh, inventive ways that they cr collected taxes. They had a production tax. So one-tenth of all your crops, they would collect that. They had an income tax, 1% of a person's wage. They had a poll tax, which is basically, it's not like a toll road or a, 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 you know, a voting poll. A poll tax is basically a tax that you've got to pay for being alive. You know, you're breathing, you're using the air around here, so we're going to need some money for that. Road tax for using an ancient road toll. Uh, and then there were the under-table expenses. There was extortion and bribes and all of this. Matthew was likely ca caught up in all that. So tax collectors had a public image problem. In Jewish society, a tax collector was a religious and a social outcast. So now, let me just summarize so we kind of get the idea who Matthew was. Matthew was a source of embarrassment to his family. He was probably ashamed to his family. He was a collaborator with the Roman enemy. He was a traitor that sucked people dry because of greed. He was a man who had intense social and religious prejudice against them. Now, in the midst of all of this, one day, Matthew looks up from his tax collecting booth, and there stands Jesus. And that's when things begin to change. And basically, Jesus says to him, follow me. He doesn't say, hey, meet me at the temple, and then we'll talk about it. He doesn't say, clean your act up. He doesn't say, change, then follow me. He says, follow me. Now, Jesus doesn't wait for Matthew to come to him. Jesus goes to where Matthew is, and from that moment on, everything changes. Now, I've always had a question about this, not just with Matthew, but you see it with other people in the Bible, too. I've always wondered exactly how this worked. There's got to be part of the story that's not written in the Bible and that we don't know anything about. How is it that Jesus just walks up to the booth one day, knocks on it, and says, follow me. And the guy says, you know, I'm tired of being rich. I'm really worn out on this. I'm just burnt out on having everything I want and being rich. And I think I'll just, I think I'll, by this time he could, who knows, he could have been a, a drunk, wealthy miser who was just uh, bitter and hard-hearted. There's got to be more to the story. I mean, why don't you go to, the, uh, to work Monday? Why don't you bump into somebody at the water cooler? Why don't you try this method and say, hey, follow Jesus? I just do it every day and let's see what you get. Let's see what kind of traction that gets you with the transformational power of God. Probably not very much at all. So I think there's more to the story, but I think the answer is this. Regardless of how much more to the story that there is, regardless of what all the seeds that were sown into Matthew's life and that were watered and that were fertilized and the gospel was somehow nurtured in his life, regardless of all that that, there had to come a point 
where, where, where Matthew said, and there has to come a point where we hear Jesus say, and there has to come a point in evangelism or outreach or the mission of God, there has to come a point in our heart and life where we say, you know what, I'm turning my life away, I'm turning my back to my old life, and I'm turning to Jesus, and I want to follow Him, and I want to be like Him, and I want Him to transform me and to forgive me, and I, I want to follow Him with my whole life. There has to come that moment. I think that's the point. So for Matthew, following Jesus moves from an old life to a new life. So Jesus doesn't say, Matthew, invite me into your heart. Jesus doesn't say, pray the prayer with me. Jesus doesn't say anything like that to Matthew. Jesus doesn't say, pray the sinner's prayer. Jesus says, follow me. Now the Greek word for follow literally means come after on the road. So Jesus is saying, come and take the road that I'm taking. Now someone once asked uh, Emily Post, who was an etiquette expert of another generation, uh, if a person receives an invitation to eat dinner at the White House, but they already have another thing scheduled, what does etiquette say that they do? Here's what Emily Post wrote. An invitation to dine at the White House is a command. And it automatically cancels all other engagements. And that's the way that Matthew, for whatever reason, received Jesus' invitation to follow him. This cancels all other invitations. This cancels all other engagements. This is how it was with Matthew. So uh, get this picture. We've been looking at it sort of from Matthew's side. Now look at it from Jesus' side. Jesus has just installed... A cheating, Rome-loving, morally corrupt, spiritually challenged tax collector is a disciple. So what seems like the next step? I mean, what seems like step one? Quit being a lying, cheating, thieving, you know, for, turn your back on all that and come and follow me. That's step one. What, what, what does it seem like step two is? Well, here's what step two. If throw a party and invite all your heathen friends to meet Jesus wasn't at the top of your list, you probably missed that one. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, look at that with me. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now I want you to picture for a minute uh, the atmosphere of this party. Jesus is at Matthew's house <laughs> eating dinner. Jesus says, follow me, and then he follows Matthew home. And the atmosphere in this room is probably more like a, a smoky bar. I mean, you know, this is not... This is not the foyer of the church. This is not a cathedral. This is not a chalet in the country. This is probably more like a smoky bar. There are tax collectors and outcasts and people with bad reputations and they're the down and out are in the room and the up and out are in the room. This is a tough crowd. Christian cliches are like not going to cut it. You got to have some real down-to-earth conversations. And here Jesus is just sort of hanging out in the middle of this crowd and these are not people that would normally seek out the advice of a spiritual leader, but here they are sitting at the table, dinner table, with him. 
kind of giving them a chance. I mean, by the way, they're at Matthew's house. They know Matthew. And so they're willing to give Jesus a go because they know Matthew. So if you have something to write with, let me give you three things that we learn about our own relationship and following Christ and Jesus' call for everybody to follow him. Here's the first one. Jesus offers new life to anyone. Anybody. Uh, anybody, anywhere, there's no one too far gone, there's no one too far wrong. Matthew's story reminds us that Christians can come from every walk of life. Those who turn their back on God, atheists, agnostics, thieves, murderers, prostitutes, homosexuals, greedy, drug addicts, drug addicts and, by the way, good old-fashioned southern people who are honest and hardworking and moral and pay their taxes but just don't know God very well. He also calls them. People who think they're saved but they're not. People who grew up in a Christian culture, but they didn't. From every background, Jesus loves people, and he came to defeat the things that keep us far away from him. And he came to destroy the things that destroy us. So the first thought is Jesus offers new life to everybody. Here's the second thought. Jesus offers new life through us. Jesus has a plan to call the world into a following relationship with him. And here's what his plan is. You. You're the plan. I'm the plan. We're the plan. We are Jesus' genius master plan to call the whole world into a following relationship with him. You know, you can almost hear Matthew. I, if you go all the way to the end of the book of Matthew. Now, remember the guy that wrote this. The black sheep of the family, the traitor. The sellout, the guy who sold it all for money, the guy who had all these friends, the guy who had a whole other life, the whole party scene guy. But at the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, 19, Matthew writes a very important verse. And, it, and as I'm reading it, I'm hearing it different now that I know Matthew better than I've ever heard it before. I can, I can hear Matthew saying, I remember the day I looked up and Jesus was standing at my booth. I remember the day that I first met him. I remember when he asked me to follow him. I remember that night, that crazy night that we had dinner at my house and all them people. And now that I know him better, that was so weird. <laughs> that all those people were crowded around at the dinner table with Jesus. Man, that was, I had no idea at the time how how unique that was. And, and there all the people were. And now here at the end of the, of the book, here at the end of Matthew's closing statements on this person that called him to follow him, Matthew says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Why would that be important to Matthew? Because he was one. Because he was one of those people who, who somebody needed to come into his life and say, follow me, follow Jesus, be like him. Jesus found him. Matthew had never been the same and couldn't forget what happened to him. Do you remember the time that Jesus came into your life and said, follow me? Do you remember being one? 
Do you remember being outside? Do you remember what it felt like? Do you remember what you went through? Do you remember the emptiness? Do you remember the loneliness? Do you remember the lack of peace? Do you remember the inner conflict? Do you remember the guilt? Do you remember the fear? Do you remember? Matthew said, this is so important to me that I write down what I heard Jesus say. Because there are other Matthews out there who somebody needs to talk to. Somebody needs to tell. There are other ones out there, so therefore go and make disciples. See, Jesus didn't just come to earth to die. He could have died a lot earlier. And the sacrifice would have stuck. He could have died right off. He could have came out of the wilderness and the power of the Holy Spirit having been baptized in water. He could have came out of there and died right then. And I'm just going to go ahead and step out on a theological limb and say, and that death would have counted. And our sins would have been forgiven and it would have been the whole thing. But there was something important to Jesus. He had a mission that wasn't just dying. That was the ultimate mission. But while he was alive, he had a different mission. And the Bible tells us what it was. It was to seek and to save that which is lost. Now watch, follow me. Follow me. I didn't mean it like that. Follow this as we follow him. How about that? We can't claim that we're following Jesus fully unless we follow him everywhere he went. Does that make sense? We can't say we're fully following Jesus Jesus unless we follow him everywhere he went if the disciples would have said to him you go meet the woman at the well in Samaria but we're not going could they have said they were following him no not fully they could follow him here but not here and to follow Jesus in part is in some ways, not to follow Jesus at all. So what did Jesus do? He came to seek and save the lost. We can't say as a church that we're following Jesus fully unless we're following him doing his mission. So Easter's coming. In just a few weeks, it's going to be Easter. And we're praying and we're working on a resurrection celebration. And I'm going to be encouraging you every week between now and and Easter, I'm going to be encouraging you every week to follow Jesus in inviting people to Him. So I'm going to be encouraging you every week. Have you invited someone to Easter service yet? You know why? It's the easiest Sunday in the entire world, everywhere on the planet. You have people that have never gone to church in their whole life who will be in worship services on Easter Sunday in every country on earth. It's the most well-attended Sunday on the whole planet. And so I'm going to be encouraging you every week. Have you invited someone to Easter service? This might be the tax collecting booth moment. This might be the time that the seed is planted or it's watered or some other opportunity happens. Have you invited someone yet? I'm going to be encouraging you to bring somebody with you. It's the easiest Sunday of the year to do it. So following Jesus means following him in inviting. Now, I want to encourage you. Uh, that's one of the reasons I want to encourage you in your Facebook uh, and Twitter to, to follow me. 
to jump on and follow me because I'm going to be posting things. I'm going to be posting inspirational things. There are going to be articles and thoughts and quotes and statements. I'm going to be posting stuff uh, starting, starting in a few days. And those are things you can, you can copy or share or spread. And the people that are your friends. See, here's the idea. Let's invite people not just to a service. Let's invite people to experience resurrection. And that doesn't just start Easter Sunday. That can start like now. So start putting the thoughts out there. Start putting the sound bites out there. Start putting the inspirational thoughts out there. And let the Holy Spirit use those seeds. Water those seeds. Use those things. And who knows what could happen. Who knows what will happen. Jesus invites us to follow him. And he offers new life through us. All right, here's the last one. And I'm going to ask the worship team to join me. Jesus offers his followers new life again. Now, I'm not saying you, you're, going to, you're going to become a Christian again. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you're following Jesus, I, I want to... It was so clear to me that... Um, that one of the powerful things the gospel of Jesus does is it pushes back against uh, the lies and the limitations and the, um, the deceitful and undermining thinking that the enemy and the flesh and that sin continues to propagate to our mind and our spirit. The gospel pushes back on that. So Matthew's story reminded me that we can change at every new level. You know there's no limit to how deep you can go in God? Finishing God is like saying I finished the internet, you know. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I go to a small group and I and I give and I read my Bible and I go to church. I mean, what else is there? Uh, nothing except a whole universe. Nothing except the rest of God. And by the way, that's a lot. There's there is always another place in God to go. Every part of your life can change. I'm sure there was a day that Matthew gave up. He gave up on every... He had to at some point in his heart say, I'll never be the person my parents want me to be. Don't call me Levi, call me Matthew. I'm not going to fulfill the thing that my parents thought I was going to be. And, and I'm not going to be a spiritual leader. And I, I gave up on being a priest. And I gave up on doing what I should do. And he sold out and now it was too late. But in the end, watch this, in the end, Matthew became a spiritual leader like his parents could have never understood. He became one of the 12 disciples. He became one of the apostles. He became one of the writers of the New Testament. He became one of the greatest Christians the world's ever known. And that just encourages me and it reminds me of something. Every lie the enemy tells you is wrong. God has more in store for you than you could ever imagine. He can do more, what does the Bible say? According to the power of God that is at work within us, He can do more than we can think or imagine. Man, it just gives me hope. It's resurrection life. God can do more in you than you can ever think or imagine. So I just came this morning to call all the lies out on the carpet and say if God has a plan for you, He hasn't changed His mind. I believe He was called Levi for a reason. And God took that Levi and he transformed him into a Matthew. And he was a leader in a whole nother way that his parents could ever imagine. Some of you this morning have given up. 
You might not admit it. You might not want it. Maybe you haven't admitted it to yourself. But you've given up. You said, I'll never be the husband that God wants me to be. I'll never be the husband that somehow can be the one my wife admires. Or I'll never be the wife that I, that I wanted to be or I thought God wanted to be. Those dreams of youth have fallen off and died and been crushed by the, by the voice of the enemy or, or, or by some bad experiences or even things you've done wrong. We'll never be the parents that we had dreamed we would be. We'll never be able to fulfill that plan that God had in our life. I'll never be a very good, my wife's a good Christian, but I'll never be a very good Christian. I'll never feel it the way she feels it. Or I'll never be able to do my devotion. I've tried, I've tried to read the Bible and it just doesn't make sense to me. I've tried to pray and I'm just never going to be able to do that. Or, or I'll never be able to be faithful. I mean, I see people and they're so energized by it and I try and I fail and I try and I fail. Or I'll never be able to be free of this secret sin. Let me just tell you, there's a lot of secret sin floating around in this room. And the reason that it's true is because the enemy has told you you can't be free. But I want to drag the lie out in the light this morning. I want to drag it out on the carpet and I want to tell you if Matthew can be free, you can be free. It's a lie to start. I'm telling you, I, I know what I'm talking about. The enemy lied to me for years. As a young believer, I lived under the weight that this area of my life would never be in freedom. But I'm telling you, it's not true. It's a lie. You can. Philippians says, I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. Would you repeat that with me this morning? I can do all things through Christ. It gives me strength. I'm going to tell you, some of you, that heals your soul. It heals your soul. Stand up with me this morning, and I want you to say it again. I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. Come on. I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. Now, I'm just telling you, Christianity is... is suffering some stuff right now but you know what it is they don't know what you're made of they don't know what's in you they don't know what God has put in your soul they don't know what new life is they don't know what transformation's about they don't know what the power of the Holy Spirit can do they don't know the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ Jesus said follow me to a new life and this morning if you've bought in if you've struggled, if you've fought that limitation, if you said it's never going to happen, if you've given up on something good, then I would just say to you, keep following. Keep following. Don't slow down now. Don't turn your head back. Don't look away. Don't break your stare on God. You keep moving forward. Keep following. Keep following. New life is not an event. New life is a relationship. Therefore, it is ever unfolding and ever growing. And new life never finishes its work. You always have lamentation says there is new mercy every morning. So I'm, I'm just going to ask our prayer team to come. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me. The worship team. It's going to sing in just a minute. Here's what I want you to do with nobody looking around. I'm telling you, there's a, there's a moment here for somebody. But, you, but you'll, you'll need to be brave. You'll need to be courageous. 
when Jesus taps on your heart and says, follow me, you'll have to follow. His call's not just to pray a prayer. His call's not just to be Christianized. His call's not cultural. It's transformational. It's internal. It's new life. Some of you have given up on something, and here's just how I want to have this prayer time with nobody looking around if you say this morning there's something in my life I, I don't care doesn't matter what it is there's something in my life I gave up on I gave up on you know how that usually works you don't just one day quit you just you don't just one day wake up and quit it just happens an inch at a time like one percent a day just drains off Till one day you just concede and you say, well, I guess that's just not going to happen. And it's not like you threw the white flag up. It's just you've kind of put that on the back burner because it's so busy and there's so much going on. And I just want to say to you this morning, if that's you, man, I want to pray with you and I want you to leave this place with hope and encouragement and strength. And I want you to leave here today with the refreshment and the energy and the vision you need to keep following. So today, if you've given up on something, I just want you to lift your hand and say, there's something I've given up on being a good mom or dad or husband or wife or employer or employee or dream. Or I, there's a relative I've been praying for that would come to faith and it's just been years and they haven't and to be honest I've kind of given up but I'm telling you today is a day of refreshment today is the day of renewal today is a day of renewed focus would you just kind of lift your hand and say that's me I've given up on maybe some secret sin I've given up on being free just lift your hand it doesn't matter what the deal is just lift your hand say I've given up I've given up on something would you lift your hand yeah I see your hand I see it yeah come on I see it come on lift your hand just lift your hand up. I've given up this morning. I've given up on something. Given up. Maybe it's a calling. Maybe it's using your gift. Maybe it's something like that. I've given up. Come on, lift your hand up today. I've given up. I've given up. I've given up on my devotions. I've given up on prayer. I've given up on reading my Bible. I've given up on, you know, really being a strong Christian, meeting with God. I've watched other people do it, and I just, look, I know from the statistics, the majority of Christians do not do their devotions. I know that statistically. Given up on that. Maybe, you, maybe you've never thought it, but you've practically given up. Do you just lift your hand and say, that's me. I've given up today. See your hand in the balcony. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to embarrass you or hurt you. Somebody else. Given up today. Given up on our marriage. I mean, I'll stay married, but it's never going to be good. It's never going to be good. Yeah. Any of those, any of those things, just lift your hand. I'm going to pray for you. The worship team's going to begin to sing. Here's what I'm just going to ask you to do. I'm just going to ask you if you've given up to come and let somebody agree with you. That's all we're going to do. Nobody's going to embarrass you. You don't even have to tell what it is. I just want somebody to lock faith with you and say, by God's grace, you will be refreshed today. You will be restored. You will be renewed. Lord Jesus, I thank you this morning for this moment. You have called us into a moment of deeper following of you. So that's exactly what we do this morning is we come into a place 
will we follow you deeper. If you lifted your hand or you didn't, I just want you to come now and let the prayer team agree with you. We're just going to agree with you. That's all. We're going to pray with you. We're going to agree with you. We're going to encourage you. We're going to refresh you. We're going to renew you. You're going to leave this place with strengthened vision, strengthened encouragement. Lord, we love you today. We praise you. We thank you. We thank you. We receive strength today. We receive strength and encouragement and renewal. We hear the call again of God to follow you, to follow you, to follow you. But would you just say that with me? Just say yes. God, I will follow you. Yes. God, I will follow you. Wherever you lead, wherever you call, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I will follow you. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're not even a believer or maybe you're a long way from God. Man, I want to ask you to come too. That's, that's the biggest follow right there there is in life. We want to pray with you this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we praise you today. We worship you today. We worship you today, Lord, and we follow you. We follow you this morning. And I will Help me today, Lord. Lord, I'm yours.